0: From Britain to the Bokhachiel, from Lummi to La Push, and from the lordly sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillayute, the climate is so friendly; it's a land that's evergreen.
1: Hello, and welcome to the history of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for Episode 51, The Odd Tale of Charles Victory Faust. The narrative of Charles Victor Victory Faust is perhaps unrivaled in baseball history for weirdness and improbability. Apart from Eddie Guidel, Faust was arguably the least athletic player to ever play in the major leagues, pitching in two games for the 1911 New York Giants and contributing two stolen bases to their record-setting total of 347. Faust earned his name as John McGraw's good luck charm and mascot before those game appearances. His unbreakable jinxing skills propelled the Giants to National League penance both in 1911 and again in 1912. But his luck ran out and he drifted into obscurity for the next half-century. Faust was born on the 9th of October, 1880, in Marion, Kansas, to John and Eva Faust, the oldest of their six children. Charles Faust acquired his father's heavy German accent. Unfortunately, four of the couple's children died young. Freddie died as a kid, Fred as a teenager, Louise, the only daughter and the only one to bear a child, lived only to be 32 years old, and Charles survived only 34 years. John and George were the only two survivors, and they took over the family property from John Sr. Charles, a slow-witted youngster at best, was unable to handle the immense responsibility of the farm, causing his stern father great disappointment. Little is known about his childhood, except that it must have been quite gloomy. A Plains child, he was unsuited to the land and possessed no visible abilities or prospects for bettering his situation. Until, that is, a trip to the county fair in the summer of 1911 when it transformed his life. Faust traveled to St. Louis where he ended up meeting John McGraw, the manager of the National League's New York Giants. This meeting took place at the end of July, and Faust informed John that he was told by a fortune teller that he would pitch the Giants to the title. McGraw, who was notorious for his superstitions, offered the gawky two, 180-pound 30-year-old a tryout. McGraw made a joke about Faust's lack of baseball skills by tricking him into circling the bases while the Giants' infielders tossed the ball away, allowing him to slide into each base. He ended up coated in dust at home plate, his best Sunday clothes ripped to shreds and his flesh raw, but the Giants ended up winning 9-0 that day. And when he returned the next day, they let him cavort on the field before the game. They won again, but when they left St. Louis, McGraw gave Faust the runaround at the train station and proceeded on without him. After battling through the rest of the journey, they arrived in New York and were greeted by an excited Faust at the polo grounds. The giants around this time had been like a phoenix emerging from the ashes, some of them quite literally. Just the year prior, a fire of unknown cause raced through the stadium's horseshoe-shaped grandstand early one Friday morning, the 14th of April, 1911 to be exact, burning wood and leaving only steel uprights standing. A large chunk of the outfield seating and the clubhouse were preserved from damage due to the gaps between various sections of the bleachers, mainly stemming from the haphazard construction of the seating in the outfield area. The polo grounds were rebuilt with concrete and steel by Giants owner John T. Brush, who rented Hilltop Park from the Highlanders throughout the process. If you are unfamiliar with the Highlanders, they eventually came to be known as the Yankees. Progress came remarkably fast and the stadium reopened just three months later on the 28th of June 1911. It was the 7th concrete and steel stadium in the majors and the 4th in the National League when it opened. While the games were being played, unfinished seating spaces were rebuilt. Kinda sounds like what happened at 6th Stadium for the debut of the Pilots. They'd finish a section of bleachers and let some fans in while they continued their hurried work. But I digress. That is truly a tale for its own episode. The new structure was nearly the same semicircle as the previous one had been, stretching from the left field corner around home plate to the right field corner, but it was extended into deep right center field. The surviving wooden bleachers were mostly left alone, with gaps between the new fireproof building on each side. Charles Faust possessed just enough mental capacity to absorb firmly the one idea seeded in his mind by the fortune teller, namely that he was destined to pitch the Giants to the championship. Nothing could disturb his confidence, and the next two months would demonstrate this. His success had nothing to do with athleticism. The New York Herald's John Wheeler observed of his first appearance in uniform at the polo grounds. He runs like an ice wagon and slips as though he had stepped off a trolley car backwards. He plays ball as if he were a massive mucilage. The Giants swept a doubleheader that day with Faust on the mound, and the legend of Charles Victory Faust was born. Faust quickly rose to the top of the prolonged pregame activities. He'd shag fly balls, being clunked on the head several times, demonstrate a variety of clumsy slides, and pitch batting practice to opponents like the legendary Hannes Wagner, who would let him strike them out with his poor pitches. Faust would either sit on the bench, cheering on his teammates and anticipating their base hits, or he would post himself beyond the outfield, warming up for innings at a time in case the Giants ever needed his services. Whatever he did, it sure was effective. The Giants had a 39-9 record from the moment he met McGraw in St. Louis until the day they won the pennant. Their record was an incredible 36-2 when he was in uniform and using his jinxing powers, though his tour of duty was interrupted on several occasions. When John McGraw refused to let him pitch in a game after his arrival in New York, he escaped to Brooklyn for a few days to pitch for that team, but was gruffly spurned and returned to McGraw and the Giants. He was so successful in New York after three weeks that he agreed to a vaudeville engagement. When the Giants went 0-3 in his first three days working the vaudeville scene, he left show business to return to where he thought he was clearly needed just in time for the team's 22-game road trip. They won their first 10 away games, not losing until the second game of a doubleheader in St. Louis when local sports sportswriters detained him for an extended interview after the first game, thereby keeping him from joining up with the team and working some of his magic. With Faust gone from the team, that's what was needed to apparently beat the Giants. Athletes and sports fans in general can be a real superstitious lot. Despite the team's accomplishment, Faust remained frustrated in his attempt to complete the fortune teller's prophecy. McGraw kept stringing him along no matter how many times he begged him to let him pitch. He saw that allowing Faust into a game would be a travesty to the sport, but he also observed how Faust's presence benefited the players. Faust, good-natured and naive, impervious to mockery, became the brunt of endless practical jokes, providing a comic counterpoint to McGraw's harshness, and maintaining team morale. It wasn't long before the players started to believe in his infallible jinxing abilities. Even Red Ames, dubbed calamity because of persistently bad luck, became a Faust convert. Early in that September road trip during which the Giants went 18-4 and clinched the pennant, Ames declared, I'm sure glad Faust is going to stick because he certainly has brought good luck to us all. He is a great man for the team, even if he never gets a chance to pitch. Despite his obsession with fulfilling the prophecy, Faust managed to meet the demands of all the New York baseball stakeholders. He kept the players loose, delighted the audience before games, helped McGraw climb the National League standings, and he became a favorite of big city sports writers. In New York City, there were 13 daily newspapers at the time, and reporters looking for interesting stories quickly discovered Faust. They supported his aims, documented his antics, reported the pranks, and cheered on Faust in his battle with John McGraw. Sid Mercer of the Globe, who sometimes carried two or three items a day about Faust's diversions, and Damon Runyon, a fellow Kansan who had recently arrived in New York that year, seized on the novelty of this character and had him sounding like an early version of Nathan Detroit by season's end. After the Giants won the pennant with six games remaining on the schedule, they saw no reason for McGraw to stop Faust from fulfilling his prophecy. At the polo grounds, McGraw finally gave in and put Faust in to pitch the ninth inning against Boston. Bill Raritan gave him a long double to start things off, but he got lucky after that. Raritan was bunted over by pitcher Lefty Tyler, and another long fly ball was caught, allowing Raridan to score. Mike Donlin then grounded out, laughing along with the audience at Faust's weak-armed heaves. When the last out was made in the bottom of the ninth, Faust was on deck. But, as John Wheeler put it, what are three outs to Faust? Boston stayed in the field and let Faust bat, sending him through the identical bases-circling pattern John McGraw put him through on his first day back in St. Louis, until he was tagged out just short of home plate. Faust walked off the field absolutely elated, having pitched for the Giants and led them to the National League title against all odds. He pitched the final inning of the season five days later, holding the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers scoreless. This time, he came to bat in the bottom of the ninth inning, was purposely hit by a pitch, and was permitted to steal second and third before scoring on a squeeze bunt. Unfortunately, Faust's luck ran out in the World Series when the Giants met Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics who had an experienced mascot in the form of a hunchback dwarf named Louis Van Zelst. The Athletics beat the Giants in six games when Van Zelst out-jinxed Faust with a little help from home-run Baker. When his bubble broke, Faust's stock dropped even further in mid-November after a dismal second attempt at vaudeville. Faust's debut performance at Willie Hammerstein's Victoria Theatre was so bad that the next act refused to follow him again. Vaudeville must be desperate when it attaches a performance of this sort to itself, wrote a Variety reviewer, and vaudeville must be lifeless to sustain it. After spending the winter in Marion, Faust moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas in February of 1912 and joined Bill Dollins Brooklyn Superboss for spring training. John McGraw felt astonished to learn that Faust intended to rejoin the Giants as his stated goal was to learn to pitch left-handed so he could be twice as important to the team. Faust was given the opportunity to pitch a whole game in Hot Springs on the 29th of February, 1912, holding the opposition to four runs and further solidifying his belief that if given the chance, he could be a real pitcher. When camp ended, he imposed himself on McGraw once more, and despite the Giants' refusal to pay his road trip expenses, he was allowed to cavort as usual at the polo grounds. Is it any surprise, then, that the 1912 Giants had one of their finest starts in franchise history? By late June, they had amassed a 54-11 record, which would be surpassed in 2001 by, you guessed it, the Seattle Mariners. Adding that to the Giants' record prior to Faust's arrival in 1911, the team won almost 80% of its games during his tenure. Insistence that he was a pitcher wore thin on McGraw throughout season, though, who would begin to consider him as a deranged threat rather than a humorous innocent. He tried to persuade Faust to leave, but it took some cunning on the part of the players to persuade him to return to Kansas, purportedly to await McGraw's summons once it became evident how hopeless the Giants were without him. Indeed, the club's fortunes reversed as soon as Faust left, particularly Rube Marquard's, who had a 33-2 record while Faust was on the squad. Marquard won his first 19 decisions in 1912, but he lost three times in the week following Faust's departure and he finished the season as a sub-500 pitcher. Despite the fact that the club's advantage in the standings had dwindled, McGraw had no intention of bringing Faust back and the team went on to win the pennant and lose the World Series without him. Faust never made it back to the major leagues despite his best efforts he bombarded McGraw and the National League office with petitions for reinstatement and back compensation for his contributions to their penance. He moved to California, worked odd jobs, and then moved to Seattle to join his brother John, all the while asking for his return to New York. Gradually, he became convinced that he was a legitimate pitcher who was being denied his natural calling. He attempted to rejoin the Giants in July of 1914, no doubt realizing that they were being threatened by the development of the Miracle Braves. He did so, however, by walking from Seattle to Portland where he was discovered roaming the streets in a trance by police. He was sent to a psychiatric hospital in Salem after a hearing where he listed his vocation on the admittance form as a professional ball player. He was pronounced not improved but released into his brother's custody after seven weeks at that institution where he was diagnosed with dementia. They returned to Seattle, but he would soon be incarcerated at the Western State Hospital in Fort Steilacoom in December. It was there that he would die of tuberculosis on the 18th of June, 1915, while it is unclear if he had the disease before being institutionalized or if he contracted it there. He was laid to rest in an open field across from the hospital, and this story seemed to be buried with him. Faust was nearly forgotten for 50 years until Lawrence Ritter interviewed Fred Snodgrass, the Giants' center fielder from 1911 to 1912. Snodgrass repeated the Faust story in the glory of their times, although many of his facts were incorrect, most notably that Faust was with the Giants for three years and did not debut in vaudeville until the third season. Despite the faults, Snodgrass created a compelling story about this real-life Forrest Gump, who influenced the Giants more via chutzpah than competence. Since then, Faust has become a cult figure among baseball fans, and rightly so, given the Giants' remarkable performance while under his spell. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review, and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include The Society for American Baseball Research The Curious Case of Charlie Faust by Edwin V. Burkholder Pitching in a Pinch by Christy Mathewson My 30 Years in Baseball by John McGraw The Glory of Their Times by Lawrence Ritter Baseball of the Golden Age by Harold Seymour HistoryLink.org BaseballReference.com and BaseballRoundtable.com Thank you for listening to Episode 51 The Odd Tale of Charles Victory Faust Episode 52 will be released next week, and we'll return to looking back at the subjects covered in the Washington Firestorm of 1889, this time focusing on the Ellensburg Fire and a brief history of the city. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone.
0: There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queeds and on the Hoh. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's chimicum and stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still iguamish and the swirling skookum chuck, and Moklips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound, a little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.